This week on Body Talk, we are presenting a special Halloween encore edition of my discussion of what it's like to work in a human cadaver lab with master dissector, dance therapist, yoga teacher, adjunct professor, photographer, and friend, Lori Nemitz. This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Today we're talking with Lori Nemitz, who's an adjunct professor at Pace University and sees herself as a trail guide for people in their bodies, whether she's working with them in dance, in movement, in yoga, or in the recesses of a human cadaver lab. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. And today we're going to be we're going to be going down some interesting roads because we're going to be talking about what it's like to work in a cadaver lab to study anatomy and how that actually reflects the way one looks at their own mortality. And I, I have to say, I have to just pause here for a second. And my first experience in a cadaver lab, I don't think I slept much the night before. And when I walked in that first time and I caught that whiff of the preservatives, I used to work in a funeral home and that smell hit my nose and I went, I got this. What was I worried about? Did you come into this with any prior context when you first did your first dissection? Oh gosh, that is an interesting question. I wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> that's well, great. We gotta, um, we gotta start, we gotta, we gotta think about the listener here. We gotta ease them into this, right? That sounds, well, and actually this is an interesting thing because one of the first experiences I had, not the very first, but one of the first was a movement and pro-section class at Mount Sinai. And again, for the listeners who are new to some of this work, pro-section is again a pre-dissected part of the body and presented as that dissection. But the issue with prosections is that they're out of context. And this has actually been very important for me um, for everything else that has been coming since that we have a context for what we see in dissection lab. So to further elaborate, in, in a prosection, it is as if the body has been already pre-dissected into layers that you just peel back like pages on a book and say, here's a this and here's a that and here's another thing. Right. And sometimes what I mean by I mean out of context is it may be just a forearm. It may be part of the body and not the whole body system. And I think that is something too, if you're not used to stepping into lab, can be very jarring, very disconcerting. So I always found, I think since that time, I mean, really I was also learned a great deal. It's a fantastic lab, but I went deep diving into some work with Gil Headley next. And of course, Gil Headley's a lot about the holism of the body. Yes, he is. And there I did love actually doing quote-unquote layered dissections. I was oftentimes known for doing the folding flap book type <laughs> dissection and then putting it all back together every night and then, you know, taking apart another layer and being able to reveal a little bit more um, each time. 
but it's definitely, it's an interesting process because you do come into it with, okay, and what am I looking at here? How, and how am I okay with this being a body in front of me? And oftentimes, I mean, when I'm introducing a lab, I remind people what we're looking at in lab is more of like a seashell. It's the, uh, it's the remains of that life that is lived. It's not the person themselves any longer, but it's that beautiful seashell that we can take a look at some of the stories we might be able to unwind. Not everything. We have no idea what that lived life is like. None of us do. But it's that beautiful kind of remains. But if you think about it in the United States, especially, we don't deal with death and dying very well. We don't see that very often. It's in the new experience for a lot of people. And it's still a very small percentage of the population that actually enters that. But used to be, you would have a dying relative and they would be in the front parlor for a couple days. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I think we talked about a long time ago too. I had even heard stories from my mother in St. Louis. It was pretty common. You'd go on Sunday to the gravesite and you would have picnics by the gravesite, both as wow. means of visiting your past loved ones. That's that's really cool. We didn't we didn't do that. No, my I had um my mother had had a total of eight brothers and sisters. My dad's family had 12. Wow. So they were pretty big families. So there was a lot of death uh, just by the numbers. So I can remember going to funeral homes, going to funeral masses at the church. Before I was even in grade school, they didn't feel the need to shelter me from those things. Right. And there was a cemetery literally in my backyard because I lived on a half an acre that abutted this dozen and dozens of acres convent for sisters in the Catholic church. And they had their own little graveyard for priests and nuns. And we were friends with the grave digger for God's sakes. You know, I had kind of a morbid fascination about all of that, but what, what was your fascination that said, yeah, I want to go look at real life dead people because that's going to, that's going to help me. What was, what was that moment where you went, yeah, I got to go do this. Oh, goodness. Um, well, let's see. I think I, I came into this whole world. Like a lot of people do. I studied some of the anatomy first. I came into the anatomy kind of sideways. Let's go back. Shall we, David? Well, we'll let's go, go back. back. Roll we'll it back. Lori. You're four years old. <laughs> and we won't go that far. It's back. a Sunday. Now. <laughs> Actually, I was art history and French majors, you know, very esoteric fields for somebody who went into mm -hmm. um, a good college, but I, I worked financial aid. I was financial aid and scholarships to get there. And um, when I went to grad school, I went into dance movement therapy, which is kind of a alternate form of therapy. I'm board certified and licensed in New York. It's kind of an expressive arts therapy practice mm -hmm. along the lines of music therapy. And we were required, of course, we're dealing with the body. We were required to um, look at anatomy and kinesiology and pass different classes. They were great intros. But as you often know, anatomy takes time, <laughs> it takes repetition, it takes different ways of coming into it to really learn it in depth. And I was early on and, you know, after graduate school, I was teaching 
movement on the side, but I was working primarily as a therapist, but starting to come in deeper to things like yoga, particularly, which I, I dove deep into for about three decades now, um, Pilates world as well. And I found, again, I had anatomy training, but just nature of these programs, oftentimes a very superficial dive into things. Meanwhile, my therapy clients were oftentimes medically complicated. So what I saw, not only in the movement qualities, yeah, I could read things with Laban movement analysis, and I could look at things in those spheres of movement, but it wasn't making sense to me anatomically. And I was curious. It's like, what the heck? That's not a collarbone like I learned in the book, or this is not <laughs> the same way I understood things here. Yeah, I, I think... Um if all you have in your brain are the pictures and and I am a collector of pictures looking at anatomical art from an art history point of view but even at that you have this very regular very ordered idea which is not even close to reality exactly so i think it you know and i did i had that art history I was also, I still am, I draw, so I have that background of doing human anatomy for drawing. Um, but I, I did pop into Tom Meyer's work in Anatomy Trains with around the time of his first edition of his book. And way back during the first edition of the book, he also had done a 200-hour course called Body Language. It was poetically kind of inspired and looking at anatomy sideways and in a different way from what I both learned. And I was like, okay, what's connective tissue and fascia all about? I've only briefly skirted along those pathways. So I took a deep dive in there. And I think, you I mean, early on, I was really becoming interested in dissection. And I believe it was Tom who said, yeah, go to Gill first to study for a while, which I did. And, and I want to point out to those listening, Gil Headley has made all of his dissection videos available on YouTube. Is that correct? Are they still there? It's also on his website. You can okay. register and he made them all free and available. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic way to get your feet wet with learning anatomy this way. And his generosity in making this freely available is just so welcome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, of course, I came into the anatomy trains labs. I was there for several years, maybe as a student. And then I was teaching about, I think, the past eight years, teaching mm -hmm. the anatomy trains dissection labs and found I had some talent for that, both because of my art background. I could appreciate what a clean dissection looks like, but also perspective. Because you do have to come in there as a dissector sometimes with a choice of where you want to go or what you want to see. And of course, I've been involved with the Fascial Net Plastination Project. I've spent a long amount of time in Germany. We spent a, a month last. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, if that's a new term for some of you, the plastinations are those full body, crazy, very human exhibits that come out of Germany, the, the body world's exhibits and uh, which is still part of the, the brainchild of Gunther von Hagens, which you look at his creations, you think that, my God, I'm so glad he found meaningful work. 
because to, to take that kind of artistic expression and fascination into the lab and create something meant for public viewing is incredible. And um, we'll have we'll have a podcast about the fascial net plastination project at some point. So you've got quite the extensive and varied background. Uh, well, and I also did my own that I co-led this year. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, um, with uh, the yoga teacher, Leslie Kamenoff, right? Leslie Kamenoff, yep. Mm -hmm. the author of Yoga Anatomy. And that was something, too, we had talked about for years and years. I've known Leslie, too, for about three decades, just from the yoga world. And my past work is president of the Yoga Teachers Association. And I, it was a chance to explore see where where I wanted to tell the story and how I wanted to tell it. And then it was also somewhat good for this year for work. We did it also in the fall before things closed down heavily again. We pre-tested. Mm -hmm. so, so when you say tell a story, yes. uh, you've, you've got a body there in front of you. Mm -hmm. So that suggests to me that there are a number of different possible stories that you could tell. So give me an example. Give us an example. All right. Well, traditional dissections highlight the muscles and the bones, or at least recent medical dissections, which I've been part of too. And it's an interesting, different story because, again, if you're throwing away the fascia in the bucket to highlight the muscles, you unwind a certain story about what the body is and how it's named. If you start to look at that connection in the fascia, you start to unwind another story about maybe functionality and movement or in breath or in anything mm -hmm. else of that nature. It also matters if we're talking a preserved tissue body, formaldehyde preserved, or yes. one that has been unembalmed. And that too, this past lab that I did with Leslie Kamenoff, we purposely had that side-by-side -side comparison. So you had unembalmed, fresh, as it were, and the embalmed. Yeah. Those are two very different mediums because yeah. the, the embalmed one is kind of like deboning the Thanksgiving turkey after it's been around for a few days and try to be neat about it. And, and the other one, the fresh one, is like trying to cut jello, as far as I'm well, concerned. Yeah. Depends on okay. your that, that's my perspective. Give me too. yours. Yes, it depends on technique too, but you have to be more aware because it's actually much more mobile like a, a living body would be. So, of course, there's fluid, there's tissues you want to be more aware of because they haven't been hard and bombed. So there's a different way of working with that tissue. Also, I, I would say it's almost more that um, shattering of the fascias, more the cotton candy pulling apart. The fibers really shatter in a different way, whereas in um, an unembalmed tissue, cadaver, you're seeing the sliding and gliding. So if I only mm -hmm. worked with an embalmed tissue cadaver, I might think, oh, well, this is how how all elderly people are, or how people are in real yeah, or yeah. how whatever, and not have that appreciation mm -hmm. like, oh, this is the space where movement happens. Yeah. And when I was in Germany for the first time in 2010, we got to uh, actually dissect a, a freshly, as in still warm, euthanized rat. Oh, wow. Okay. Which in terms of really being able to appreciate 
the lively medium that is our connective tissue system was unparalleled. Of course, it helped to actually have prior dissection experience <laughs> to relate it to that. But that was tough. Once I got past the skin layer, it was easy. But getting through that skin initially was like, ah, I can't do this. Ah, I'm killing a dead thing. Did, did you have any squeamish moments in all this? Or did you just kind of? Gosh, I haven't for a very long time. But like no, said, you're a pro I... now. My my initial would have been, like I said, with those pro sections because it didn't have a context to put it in. Like I still have a big visual of a, a forearm that just didn't make sense to me because I didn't know where <laughs> it belonged, literally. So I haven't for a very long time. And I think a lot of students, especially students I've worked with, get over that quickly. There is that fear and that nervousness. And we Definitely, this is part of our conversation. We have to honor that because we aren't around death and dying very much. You know, once you get past that kind of, ooh, I'm around something, I have a squeamishness, there is a fascination of what you're seeing under the surface. And it's almost like unwinding geography. You start to see trees and branches and mountains and everything mm -hmm. else. And this is why everybody coming out of dissection labs always take lots of nature pictures. Cause like, first of all, you, know, <laughs> you can't take the pictures obviously for respect to the bodies. There's a yeah. lot of rules in these labs, but there's also that appreciation like, Oh, what I'm seeing inside the body is very much like how nature is shaped outside. Absolutely. There's just such a profound connection and relationship. And, and you bring up something interesting too. I've never talked to anybody who overall had a bad experience or mm -hmm. wished they hadn't done right. a cadaver lab dissection course. Not a single person. They right. all came back profoundly changed. Well, you mean during this last dissection that we had in the fall, um, we had people writing poems for their donor body. We had people expressing their desire to become donors and to, you know, there was lots and lots of feeling and emotion around a time that's been very challenging because we did have a few um, people, I should make this clear, in the lab itself. That's why I said we pre-tested, post-tested, got temperature checks every day, mm -hmm. masks mm -hmm. everywhere, but we did have a small group that was in the lab itself and they also as much as the audience that was back home for the live stream um, were deeply impacted. And I shared the quote from a very dear writer and thinker and environmentalist, Barry Lopez, who sadly recently passed away himself on um, Christmas day. And he basically talked about, we are all just stories and compassion. And that's <laughs> kind of basically what we need to be for each other too, is stories and compassion. That's always really, really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in the lab, I think too, when we aren't used to dealing with death and dying, this is a really interesting time to talk about it, obviously in the middle of a pandemic, um, because almost everybody knows of somebody or knows, has somebody personal who may have passed during this pandemic. And yet there is a sense of not being able to oftentimes be there with a loved one. Heightens the, the distance we have from grief and grieving and death and dying as it is. So I think these expressions of 
you know, how do we deal with all of this becomes fascinating to me. And early in this whole pandemic, I became really interested in hearing again about the Decameron, which you may know too, is that- Yes, I do. In the story, mm -hmm. During the plague, that there was this group of, you know, youngsters who in the, the book outside of Italy would tell each other stories to pass the time. And I find this so fascinating to tie this in too, that we have to be caring and storytelling. And we're not the first time in history to go through something very dramatic, but it is, again, we're used to death and dying being a very sanitized process. Yeah, I. it's funny because I, you know, <clears throat> my experience is everyone's experience, but I, you know, I, I am so far removed from the idea of it being sanitized uh, is, is a, back then frontline worker in the 80s in Miami during the AIDS thing, oh, yeah. um, having to pick up dead bodies <clears throat> in every conceivable location, not just hospitals or nursing homes, but many different types of locations. Uh, you you, you kind of get used to the fact that there, there's definitely some, so, some mess involved. When you talk about being so far removed from death, I think that part of it too is let's call it ancestral memory. So my father was born in 1916, my mother in the mid twenties, my grandmother died at the age of 88 when I was 18. So I, I feel like I grew up very differently than a lot of people may be listening to this podcast right sure. now. Sure. So there was that whole span of just coming out of the Spanish flu pandemic for my dad who survived right. it as a two-year-old all the way through two major world wars, Vietnam. Uh, I had an uncle who served in World War II under General Patton and came back kind of not so right in the head anymore. But we didn't call it PTSD back then. They, why, would you be, why would you be having problems? We won. You were part of the winning, you know? I mean, so they kind of, they didn't understand how to deal with that then. But I think we were a more death forward culture, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, when do you see that that changed and what, what are we missing out on hmm. by that change? Um, well, that's a great question. And I think it goes both ends of the spectrum. I think it goes birth and dying, which are also two areas I worked with a lot. My career is <laughs> early childhood and birth, as well as geriatric and death and dying. And I think, you know, again, we've become so used to hospital births. Um, C-sections are, again, a huge proportion of the births in this country are done C-sections, often voluntary. Sometimes they're necessary medically, but oftentimes voluntary. And then dying, a lot of times, again, people are not encouraged to linger with a loved one. There's a need to get things cleaned up and represented. And I think you know, not that far back, as you said, not that far back is, is again, a reality of dealing with, you would have witnessed a birth, would have witnessed somebody dying. I mean, I've seen that in my career as a therapist, but there's a lot of people who've never watched. Yeah, I, I was privileged to watch both of my parents die. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sincere when I say privileged to actually yeah. watch them go and be there for that moment. And uh, it's, it's something I am always grateful for. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's profound. And yet a lot of people don't have that experience and aren't encouraged to be with that in a profound way. Used to be family would be encouraged to be the ones watching a body afterwards, to be with a body. Mm -hmm. And that's still a big part of the Jewish culture. Yeah. So it's, it's a real big shift, I think, for this modern age that we've stepped away from it for, well, and I'll give you another example for Amy and our, and the children that are in this generation too now, um, it's both birth and dying that they're stepped away from, but also nature in general. There's just such a profound pulling away from natural processes. When you hike, as I do, you inevitably also come across death and dying, you know, and then yes, you do. <laughs> you see the fish that's washed up on the shore, the bird attacking the other bird, and that, you know, mm -hmm. but it comes that you have a curiosity and an interest in it too, because it's part of process of life and death. When we're stepped back from that, we don't seem to have that as a reality and it can be a challenge. So what, what are we missing if we don't have that as a reality or what, what have you gained yourself by having that as a daily reality uh, because it's become part of your profession? Well, I oftentimes quote the book, the lost words or talk about the book, the lost words, which you may or may not be aware of. This is a book. I hope I got that down right. You can look it up. We'll look it up for your <laughs> podcast. Make sure I have that. But it was uh -huh. a book, beautiful book. It's really a children's book that was created because they were finding in the Oxford English Dictionary, they were taking away words that weren't being utilized very often, like damn. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. You've heard of this one, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Now that you bring it up, yeah. And so I, I always am profoundly impacted by like, okay, what if we take away something or that's away from our perception or um, our idea of understanding, we lose something. And I think natural world, that's a big one. Birth and dying too, this becomes an interesting one because then people become scared and hold on to things in different ways. Mm -hmm. There was a pastor in, I won't name names, but there's a pastor in our local community. It's okay if they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> who was in our local community and was a yoga student of mine for quite some time too and was actually always he was interested to know that I went away to teach and assist in these dissection labs but he also one time came up to me uh, and said just like oh isn't that so horrific and awful and I was like wow no actually the more I've worked in dissection labs, the more comfortable I think I've been with death and dying as well. And I find it's interesting, the people that work in these labs, whether, again, we're talking Gil Headley or the Anatomy Trains Dissection Labs or my own recent lab with Leslie or the Plastinarium, I, these are some of the most rich, interesting, plugged-in, alive people I've met. Maybe because you are well aware, <laughs> cycle of life mm -hmm. ends at some point. A lot of these people too, I have to say, well, obviously Gil is a prime example. He has a PhD in philosophy. So there is already that sense of 
questioning, of wondering, of being profoundly trying to place experience somewhere um, with recognition and respect. So I don't know if that answered your question whatsoever, but (laughs) I just forgot for a while. (laughs) No, 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 no. That was was all lovely, I guess. Lori and David will continue to ponder the mysteries of life and death when Body Talk returns after the break. I guess what I'm looking for, and maybe what I'm looking for doesn't exist uh, as such, but you know, was was there? Is there a specific memory, a specific moment in your experience where you went, ah, I understand something now that I never understood before and never would have if I hadn't done this. Oh, well, I think those aha moments come up every single time I'm in lab. And that's beautiful because you would think after a while it would just get routine, right? No, no. I mean, I think that's why, you mean this year there was such a drive for me to do a lab. You mean in a year that was challenging because there is always beauty in there and there's some new discovery. So, so let's start with the most recent one because it's the freshest, the one that you did in uh, in New York with Leslie Kamenov? No, it's actually out in San Diego. Oh, San Diego. Okay, my bad. I just always associate Leslie with the Breathing Project in, in New York. Yeah, there. we're both New York, but right. Okay, <laughs> you go where you go where the bodies are. You know what I'm saying, kid. Um, so let's start with that one. What what was the story there that you were telling, and what was the beautiful surprise for you that happened during the class that was was new? Well, I mean, I think one of the most profound. One of the people attending has actually changed her course career. She wants to do this now as a profession. She felt very lost in kind of where she wanted to go next. And it was, this was an aha for her of, this is amazing. And I think doing that, you know, mentoring in any shape or form that we can is something really profound. So I was happy to be part of those sorts of moments too. Because again, it's it doesn't do any good to hold on to knowledge or skill or technique if you don't pass it on. You know? No, but I also think the hallmark of a good educator is not being able to show off how much you know, but exciting uh, your students, the people under your charge to have their own moments of self-discovery. And, and, and be energized by how much they can learn and how much there is to learn. Absolutely. And that's, that's what it's about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I get, I get excited about that. And we never know. We never know what is going to come in these lovely packages. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, 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 okay. So let, let's go in the other direction. Did you ever walk into a lab uh, with a plan in mind for a specific thing you were going to do, look at that body and go, oh shit, this isn't going to work. Well, yeah. I mean, we had also for this one, three donors. This was the first lab I was truly co-leading on that level. And of course it has to be partially live streamed. So this is, this is an interesting <laughs> process because. Did you use GoPros you on your. Yeah, uh... as and you have your cameraman, Christopher, who is lovely and wonderful, mm-hmm. like two inches away from my shoulder. Um, 
you're going, I have no idea what's going to happen here. If it's going to be beautifully showing something or if something else may not go the way you want to. But there's a lesson in that as well, that there was an ability to show some breathing, which as you mentioned, uh, Leslie, you know, was in, had the breathing project. And so there was some capability of being able to see things in a different way for a lot of people. And that was exciting. But, you know, you don't know until you get there what you're going to have coming up and how you have to negotiate that. But that's part of the excitement. I'm doing a dance with this donor. It's obviously no longer there, but whatever their story was in there in some ways is partially revealing itself. Like I said, I still will never know their full story. Did they, you know, have a happy marriage? Were they, you know, whatever, those sorts of things. So I, you know, have to kind of unwind these gifts um, and and both learn anatomy in a very help people learn anatomy in a real sense, but also take a look at what did this body do in their life in, you know, in reaction to, hey, this was a surgery here. How did that shift things or change mm -hmm. things? Or, you know, wonder, I have a curiosity, what went on here? Because there was a different deviation than what we normally see. But yeah, every single lab, something different. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the wonder, because, you know, again, well, you're you're just as guilty of this. I have hundreds of books. <laughs> Part of the reason. Yeah, I, I have no guilt about it. I have no guilt about it. Just a lack of room. <laughs> and especially in anatomy, is because mm -hmm. um, I want to have different perspectives, different ways. Yeah, and there's it. so many different ways of seeing, and the anatomy drawings that you see today, influenced by Netter are different yeah. than the ones from a hundred years ago, or the ones from Germany from a hundred and fifty years ago. Uh, right. Or the ones from Timi, which actually have the fascia colored white instead of just black lines, which they, there's a there there. I love Timi. Thank you, Timi. Thank you for doing that. Speaking of white lines, uh, I want to actually key in on something that you're very infamous for. Uh, but I want to set this up for the listener here. But uh -oh. there's a, uh, th there's the story. Hmm. This is not going to air in October, but maybe it should. There's the story of the ghost heart. Uh, oh, so, <laughs> which yeah, which I came to the ghost heart from uh, Doris Taylor and her lab in Texas, and their way of decellularizing, basically taking everything out of the heart that isn't connective tissue, and then being able to reinject it with stem cells. And, mm -hmm. and theoretically grow a new heart from basically the biological blueprint and scaffold. And, uh, but you actually took it upon yourself in one of these dissection labs to say, I'm going to figure out the formula and I'm going to do one of these things because I want to see that. Uh, tell us that story. All right. Yeah, that's pretty much how it came about too. It's, and I've done several hearts, over a dozen hearts, as well as a fascial kidney, which I Whoa. think I'm the only one who's done a fascial kidney. And it's actually in the, the fascial kidneys in the latest edition of Anatomy Trains. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one point where Todd Garcia asked, well, what project would you want to do if you could do a side project and, and along with teaching and everything else? And I said, well, this is really fascinating because I had heard Tom for years talking about 
that image of the, the thigh rotating and you can see it mathematically taking out all the muscle fiber and leaving behind those fascial divides. And he's like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a way we could do that with the body? And that's where once I saw Doris Taylor's um, literature on the ghost chart, I was like, that's cool. So There's did you diving. right here and get the magic formula? Do you just combine Dawn and some no, baking soda? I'm How do you do it? I heard the formula. <laughs> I, I, really, <laughs> I, cool. I had a cheap budget. The first year I decided for myself, I wasn't going to spend much over $50. Okay. And I had Science seen, on a budget with Lori budget, And I had seen some versions online that people had done with animal organs and similar ideas of decellularization just as a science project. And I was like, oh, this isn't that hard. Um, things like, again, you can take a, a shampoo with a high concentration of sodium lauryl sulfate that is going to defat that tissue. And that's going to be one thing to break it down. Salt will start to decompress, you know, the cells a little bit, but you can't, it's like black room photography, dark room photography. You can't leave anything too long or it will destroy that scaffold um, at the same mm. time. There were all sorts of processes. I was like, oh, okay, you can use this for that. Um, and that would be a good substitute. So I, I was wow. aiming up. Plain are coming. Yeah, at one point mm -hmm. I was going, what is a cheap substitute for it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, so and I then I'm imagining you on your walks through the woods going, maybe I'll find a dead animal today and I can do a little proof of concept I, here. It was really interesting. I did the first one mm -hmm. in one of the anatomy trains dissection labs and that was uh, actually worked to my surprise. And I repeated um, various times and also with that fascial kidney and Gil also became, that was 20, I think 20, uh, 20, maybe the 2016 fascial research, which was the one in Washington, DC. Yeah. That would have been, um, the, yeah, 2015, I think 2015, 2015 because of our yeah. three year cycle until, mm -hmm. until <laughs> now. Yeah. Um, so I did present it there. I presented it for um, Experimental Biology, which is a huge conference. That is. That Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I've done some orals and posters there, but I presented there as well on the fascial organs. And that also, too, caught the attention of Gil, who was fascinated by this, along with Peter Hurling and other people that mm -hmm. were interested in this is i was way in the back with a poster that year <laughs> no i remember and, i remember visiting luckily, that poster yeah. cool <laughs> you know it doesn't matter if 300 people show up or three people show up if those three people are the right three are people really the cool right yeah um, so it's fine but that led to actually gil headley wanting to squidgy the fascia and get out the decellularize it in a different way by manipulating mm -hmm. it something Juno and Christopher did in his labs. I came in and went back to the New Jersey lab one day to see the process of all of that as well. Some of what he presented to um, at the last Fascial Research Congress, which I think was 2018 in Berlin, whenever mm -hmm. we were there. Yep, yep. Um, and that kind of also led to some of the next process of the fashion that plastination project, not fully, because we're not decellularizing, but it's a different 
viewpoint of flipping what we want to see versus what we leave behind. And obviously, somebody like Carla Stecco is huge for this. Her fascial anatomy atlas um, is really instrumental for a lot of people now. Mm -hmm. And again, that understanding of what we want to see, what's relevant, and what is something we take away. Because it's it's going to change our perception again. That was, so sometimes I mean, the decisions I, you make about what you're going to do, what you're going to show, are actually more important than the process of doing the work. Yeah. yeah. And even in the case of the ghost organs, what I found so fascinating, gosh, the, you know, fascial kidney, you think of something so infused with blood and other mm -hmm. tissues that when it's decellularized, looks like a spongy, you know, interconnected system that flops when you pick it up, but you put it back in water, that water environment, hey, there's the shape again of the kidney. And that's, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so just to just to reiterate, um, so what I believe you just said, Laurie, is that when you decelerize and create these ghost organs, they can lose some of their the characteristic shape that you would associate with that organ, but just pop it in water like one of those magic sponges, and suddenly it's a bear again or a kidney. Is that what I just heard no, you say? Or the kidney. That's true for okay. the heart kept a lot of its structure, shockingly, a lot of structure just on its own. But is that because like, of the different type of collagen in the heart? I'm thinking, and I've got to look at that too. It's probably both collagen and probably both functionality. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to look into that deeper for sure, but I was just fascinated. To me, the kidney was far more interesting, even though the ghost heart is pretty darn cool. Yeah, ghost just... Kidney, it just sounds good. <laughs> so, how you feeling today, Max? Yeah, my ghost kidney's acting up again. I you don't know what to do. But yeah, the ghost heart has kind of so much romance in those three words. There you go. <laughs> but the kidney was just pretty cool to see that way. Yeah. So I have shared some of the formula and some of those scientific papers have gotten other people reaching out for interest in that. It's it's interesting. I haven't done it for a while. I'd love to refine that technique because I think there's something very cool and educational about being able to show that and work with that. Uh, so maybe more will be coming in the future. But yeah, mm -hmm. that was just, it was exciting because I think it brought me back to being a kid too and, and you know, being excited about science in a way. Yeah. And yeah. Just, blindly going okay i don't know what is going to happen you know let's give it a try yeah let's, let's put all this stuff you know, in a big pot and see what we get when we're done and people forget that is a lot of science it is and it is i think you know what's also been gratifying to me as a female or you know identify as female <laughs> is that a lot of people get excited about that because there still haven't been that many female anatomists. There's more coming into play, but especially, I mean, in the fascial world, obviously Carla is a big, big influence for a lot yeah. of people. But I had somebody else from this most recent lab say, you are such an inspiration to me because you owned that space as a female and you didn't do it by 
I mean, you know, right. You didn't have to usurp or undermine somebody else to own that space. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I could do it and co-lead with, you know, Leslie Kamenoff, who, mm -hmm. you know, has a strong personality and is great, but is different um, from me. And we both could hold that space. Well, and that was actually very gratifying yeah. to hear because it's been important to me. Yeah. Somebody, it, it, it's nice you know. to hear you say that. Cause I, I used to co-teach in the late two thousands uh, and uh, my predominant teaching partner was Carrie Gaynor. And yeah. uh, I loved, I loved the idea. And it, it's something that just happened because of the affinity that we had and our similarities and differences worked well together. But what I always used to think about in the back of mind, it's like, this is great because people are seeing a man and a woman conduct this class as absolute co-equals people need to see more of this. This is an important thing to see without having to make a big deal about it or label it. So that that's awesome that you got that feedback. So this leads to the, the difficult question because it's almost impossible to answer this for 2021. But <laughs> if you had a magic wand and okay, what's next for Lori Nemitz? I want it to be bing and we grant your wish. I can actually tell you something I do know is up and coming. I've been writing a book for Handspring Publishing on applications in fascia with movement crowd. And that will be coming. Uh, I'm getting towards the end of this whole process. So we're looking at probably the end of this year for publication, possibly very beginning of next year. I don't want to jinx anything any which way. Yeah, it's all, all, all <laughs> different times are who knows subject to change right now. Yeah, All is subject to change. But I'm excited mm -hmm. about that. I definitely am going to be doing more dissection work. We, we'll have to see. Like I said, we kind of have to wait and see where we get. You know, I'm, I'm responsible too. I want to... Yeah. Make sure that people stay healthy, get vaccinated, get healthy in, in terms of being able to um, open up things in a way, again, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, as, as the vaccine gets out there and gets distributed, um, I, I think that's going to open up more opportunities. The world has changed, frankly, probably, I mean, your podcasts, um, <laughs> maybe I don't want to speak for you, go, came go for about it. more, I'm certainly listening to more podcasts and, you know, interacting with a lot more people in this virtual space. And there's a piece of that that actually is lovely to still hold on to while re-engaging in the real world and can't wait to hug people again. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to performing, uh, being able to do live things again instead yeah. of on Zoom. So what's the title of your book? What, it's oh, working it's, okay. I understand. I understand how that goes. Sorry, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a title. That Correct. book by Lori Nimitz. <laughs> the Myofascial System in Motion. That's nice. There you go. That's got a, that's got a nice kind of undulating sine wave kind of rhythm to it. The myofascial system in motion. That's that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. I, I encourage you to keep that title unless something really you know more brilliant yeah. uh, comes to you. Yeah. But we will definitely have you back on the pod when your book is close to its due date. Thank you and so hopefully much. we won't have to do a C-section to, to get it out. Is there any last <laughs> thing you'd like to say or share with the audience today? 
I just I really encourage you to understand that anatomy is ever-changing and especially in dissection lab we have a curiosity and there is a vitality about life you mean when we're studying a subject that is is in death and that there can be joy there can be it can be very life-affirming so i would say um find an anatomist there's some of the fun fun people around in the lab <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on, Lori. Thank you so much for dropping by the pod today. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much, David. My pleasure. This is David Lasondak. Thank you for listening to Body Talk. If you enjoyed what you heard, please hit the subscribe button. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the show, go to patreon.com slash bodytalkradio. This is David Lasondek saying, remember, it's all connected. See you next week. Mm-hmm.